Good morning. My name is uh, John Rock. I'm the family and discipleship pastor here at Grace. Our lead pastor, Jim, and his wife, Ann, uh, got to go away together. Last year, you remember that we celebrated Jim's 20 years here at Grace, and our elders gave them a trip, and so they are on that now. We're starting it today, which is pretty cool, pretty exciting for, for them, and I'm thrilled that they get to go, and, and I'm thrilled to be with you guys as well. Uh, a lot of you guys uh, know me. I grew up in Philadelphia, and growing up in the west side of Philadelphia, uh, I became a huge baseball fan and a huge Phillies fan. And uh, that's our baseball team, in case you're not familiar with them. That's the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, but uh, I love this time of the year because in just a few weeks, spring training gets started. And there is nothing like the, the sound of the mitts, you know, slapping the baseball. There's nothing like the smell of the grass in the outfield to get me excited about spring and to get me excited about baseball season coming. Uh, about 15 or so years ago, the Phillies tore down their stadium in Philadelphia that I grew up going to, Veterans Stadium, and my wife surprised me. She went to an auction and got this chair for me. This is from the stadium that I grew up going to. I sometimes wonder if maybe I sat in it when I was a kid, but the reality is we didn't have much money. I could have never afforded to sit in this one. I always sat way, way, way up there, but it didn't matter because I was at the game, and I loved watching and cheering for the team that, uh, that, I, that I love, the Phillies. In fact, I love them so much, they actually won the World Series in 2008, uh, which is pretty incredible. Like the Cubs, my team doesn't win a ton. And, uh, and so as excited as you guys were when the Cubbies won just a few months ago, I imagine some of you guys got a little emotional. I actually got a little emotional too when the Phillies won the World Series in 2008. I even cried a little bit. And, and the reason I remember that is because I was here. I was here at Grace, and uh, Tara and I had volunteered that we were going to be in Judgment House that year, and, um, and we were in a scene where they needed a couple, and, and, uh, and so we were in the scene. I couldn't believe that the game that the Phillies had potentially to clinch the World Series was the same night that we were supposed to, one of the nights we were supposed to be in Judgment House. And it wasn't that hard of a decision to come because I knew that obviously Judgment House and reaching our community is way more important than baseball. And so it wasn't like it was hard, but I was a little bummed. And, and, and so we were taping the game at home and I was trying to not kind of find out what happened, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I did secretly sort of hope that the Lord would honor the fact that I was coming to Judgment House, you know, and maybe help the Phillies that night. Um, to win the game. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, during one of the scenes, my phone just starts blowing up. I feel it vibrating over and over and over and over again. And I should have turned it all the way off. But I realized what had happened. The Phillies had won because all my friends were texting me to say, congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. They wouldn't have texted if we would have lost. So I was like, oh my goodness, they just won the World Series. And so I'm in the middle of the scene and, and it was, a, it was a, a moving scene. But I got to be honest, that was the most emotional that I was in all night long, that particular scene, I had tears coming out of my face and it was an incredible scene, but I was also like, my team just won the World Series and I was really excited about it. So I'll never forget when they won the World Series 2008. And I think, I think that, uh, that my love for the Phillies is so emotional because it goes all the way back to when I was a kid. I would go to the games with my dad and, and my brothers and, and we would sit there and we would often go on Sundays um, because after 
church, we could go, and, uh, and on Sundays was fan appreciation days in Philadelphia. And if you were a kid, they always were giving stuff away. And so I grew up like with a Phillies backpacks, what I took to school. My Phillies lunchbox is what I took to school. You know, I had a Phillies beach towel when I went to the beach. I had a Philly cooler when I, you know, wanted to go on a picnic. Uh, anything that they could put a Phillies logo on, they gave it away, and I had it over the years that we went to the games. And I loved going to the games. Maybe I was sitting in this seat when I was a kid cheering on the team. You know, I sometimes think, and, and maybe I was uh, uh, a little too into it. I was learning all I could about the players. You know, I recorded all their stats. I memorized all the important ones. And if you're not a sports fan, maybe you think that sounds like a little crazy. Um, and even saying it out loud here in church makes me sort of, you know, rethink myself a little bit and, and what I, you know, put my time into. But, but you know, all of us get excited and become a fan of something. And if you're not into sports like maybe I am, you know, you get into television shows and, or a series of books or something. And, and I bet that there's probably some of you that know way too much about the characters and the actors and the TV shows that you follow. Uh, just like maybe I know too much about the players and the teams that I follow. And we get passionate about what we um, are fans of. Uh, and if we're really honest, the real reason that some of us are so passionate about, about being fans is that uh, uh, we, in our mind's eye, can actually picture ourselves being in that story or that movie or that book that we're reading. Or we can picture ourselves being on that team. How many times in my backyard did I go through this series growing up where, where I would say to myself, bottom of the ninth inning, the bases are loaded. There's three men on base. There's two outs. The Phillies are down by three runs and up steps to the plate. John Rauch, center fielder for the Philadelphia Phillies. Woo! Right? Because I could picture myself being on the team, right? Or, or, you know, or maybe it's basketball, you know. I picture myself getting that game-winning shot. And I don't know how many times in my driveway, I would, I would step back and I'd say, three seconds left on the clock. The ball goes into John Rock. He gets it in the corner. He shoots a three and off the rim. But he was fouled. He was fouled. He gets three shots, They're, you know. And I would do that play over and over again. And, and now I'm watching the same thing happen with my two sons out in our driveway every day after school trying to make that winning shot. The reason that we love being fans is because we, we picture ourselves in the game. We love being fans and watching the action, but we'd rather be the player in the action. And that's how God wired us as human beings. And that's what this year is all about. Getting off the bus, getting out of the chair. Instead of sitting back and watching what God is doing in our world or in our church or in our community, God instead wants you to be a part of it. See, God did not call you to be a fan. God call, gave you a role on the team. You're on the team. You're on Jesus's team. You're not a fan of his team. You're not watching what others, no, you're actually on the team. That's how God wired you. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. If you need a Bible, our ushers are here to give you one in both the, the link and, and the main as well. We want you to follow along so that you can see this amazing story. And then you can keep that as our gift to you if you don't have a Bible of uh, your own. We'd love for you to read it during the week. 
Here in Luke 5, we're going to read this narrative about the team that Jesus put together to begin his movement of Christ's followers. Luke is in the New Testament, so it's in the second half of the Bible. Luke 5. Jesus' ministry is still in beginning stages. By this point in Luke 5, he's probably been traveling around as a teacher of God's word, as a teacher of the law for about a year or so. And this passage here is sort of a turning point in his ministry. As he moves from where he's been teaching the first several chapters, the first year of his ministry, teaching in synagogues, he's now going to begin to teach out where the people are in the communities. And in this story, we're going to see uh, by the lake, the original first Laker church right here in Luke chapter 5, right? So... Jesus is not only transitioning his ministry by taking it to where the people are, but he's also transitioning his team as well. He's beginning to put together his team for ministry. Earlier in the Gospels, in John chapter 1, some of the 12 that will eventually become his apostles meet Jesus and they believe, they become to believe that he is the Messiah. And you'll see that Peter, as we read, is going to call him Master. In this passage, he's called Simon, but Simon Peter. He calls Jesus master because he already knew him, okay? And so he had been following him and believed that he was the Messiah. He had already met him. But in this passage, Jesus is calling him beyond that belief. First, they'd been called to faith. Now they were being called to ministry. So that sets it up. Let's read together. Would you stand up with me, please? Would you stand up with me as well? Luke chapter 5. Well, we're going to read the first five verses. Luke 1 to 5. Just to get us started today, the first five verses. You guys can read along uh, with me. Here we go. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats, left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Thanks. You can have a seat. Appreciate you reading along uh, with me. So Jesus is starting to take his ministry to the people. And he goes to this sea. The scripture here calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus was. And I have a map here of Israel to show you where the Sea of Galilee uh, was on the northern part. Can we get that map up there, please? Thank you. And so there's two, uh, here's the largest body of water on the west, on the left side of the picture. That's the Mediterranean Sea, the Great Sea. And then Israel is the land that is uh, between that Great Sea and then the water on the right. Most of Israel is in kind of that territory there. The Dead Sea is the large body of water on the uh, southern tip of the picture. And at the northern tip, that is the Sea of Galilee. And the Jordan River kind of runs between them. You'll read about that in scripture as well. Jesus strategically picked the Sea of Galilee. As you can see, it's kind of a bottleneck that's close to this Mediterranean Sea. And for travelers from all over the parts of that world to get wherever they were going, they had to go around that Mediterranean Sea. They, They went through that section of land pretty regularly. It was a bottleneck there. If you go to the next slide, you can see that uh, the Sea of Galilee 
had a lot of people around it because of the world route, the trade routes that went right through there. And because of the sea itself, uh, there were nine different communities that were right around the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so a lot of people lived there. It was roughly 13 miles long and eight miles wide. So a decent sized uh, lake or sea there. Historians say that there could have been 230 boats at one time that were fishing there for uh, commercially. And so it was a thriving industry. Very populous, a lot of people. And so Jesus picked this, picks this area on purpose. And so as Jesus taught, he's there. The scripture says that he was overrun by the crowd. There were so many people there. And Luke, who describes the story with a lot of attention to detail, describes the scene. He says there's two boats by the shore. And one of them is Simon's. And so he asks him, he asks Peter to put out uh, into the shore. And then Jesus sits down in the boat and begins to teach the people um, from the boat. That's what happens. So the fishermen are, are listening to Jesus um, while they're doing maintenance on their nets. It was no longer time for Peter just to see, simply be a fan and watch Jesus's ministry. Jesus wanted him to now be part of it. He asked specifically to use his boat. And so Peter takes him out into a little bit of the water and it forms the perfect teaching platform for Jesus to address the crowd. Verse 4 tells us that once Jesus was done teaching, he begins to transfer then his ministry from the large crowd to the few, or specifically to Peter. And he suggests that Peter take them out into the deep water to put down their nets to fish. Now, remember this about Jesus' team, what I said earlier. Up until this point, Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah and he had watched Jesus teach from the sideline. But God did not call Peter and God did not call you or me to be a fan of his. He called us to be on the team. And so he makes this suggestion to Peter. Peter says, Master, we've worked all night and we haven't caught anything. In the Sea of Galilee, which is a very tropical climate, the best time to fish was at nighttime when the water was cooler. The fish would then come up to the surface so they could feed. And so that was the time to go out fishing. And Peter had been out all night. And so Jesus is suggesting the wrong place. Uh, I'm sorry, he's suggesting the wrong time. It's during the day now. It's not the right time to go fishing. Jesus also did suggest the wrong place. He said, go out into the deeper waters and let's put down the nets there. Well, the type of fish that Peter was catching for his industry were, would feed in the shallow waters. That's the best place to catch them. And so Jesus is suggesting the wrong time to go fishing. He's suggesting the wrong place to go fishing. Plus, Peter had already been out all night. He had tried and he had failed over and over again. And that's critical for us to notice. It was, he probably had the wrong attitude. Wrong time, uh, wrong place, wrong attitude towards fishing on Peter or for Peter. And that's really critical for you and I to notice when it comes to being on Jesus' team. Because Jesus was teaching Peter something that I think he wants to teach you and me as well, okay? Because our community and the community of, of the world and, and churches and even our church specifically is filled with Christians filled with followers of Jesus who believe in Jesus, who watch God work without ever being part of it, without fulfilling their role for the team. And one of the biggest excuses that we use for that is that it just doesn't work out right now. It's not the right timing. You know, I, I had this really big thing going on at work. We got these big deadlines that we got to meet. 
or, or, or my family is so busy already with this huge commitment that we have, or we're kind of in the season of things where just stuff's not going well, or we say, you know, I just don't quite have enough Bible knowledge. I, I don't think that I could really be effective at doing anything important. In other words, for whatever reason, the circumstances just aren't right for me to be involved in kingdom work. I'd rather just sit here and be a fan and watch, but not get involved. But here's what Jesus is going to say to Peter. Here's where he's challenging Peter, and I think he's challenging you and me as well. It was the right time, a wrong time. It was the wrong place. He had the wrong attitude. But the lesson that Jesus was teaching Peter about being on his team was this. The situation will never be perfect to join the team. If we wait for perfect circumstances, we'll never begin at all. If you're waiting for the perfect circumstances in your life to step out and do something new for Jesus, to step out and take your faith in Jesus to another level, to serve him, to get on the team, to get more involved, it's never going to come. When when are you going to be less busy than you are right now? When's that going to come? Right? I mean, I used to think that I was busy. And now I have kids and I have a wife and I have a job that I love doing and I have other activities that we're plugged into and volunteering at. Now I think I'm crazy busy. But I used to think I was busy before. I mean, when when am I not going to not be busy to do Jesus' work, to be involved in what Jesus is doing? If you and I wait for the perfect circumstances, we'll never begin at all. And so maybe you're sitting on the bus and Jesus is telling you this is the year you get off the bus. Maybe you're sitting in the chair and, and you're watching everyone else and Jesus is saying this is the year you get out of the chair. You stop being a fan and you join the team. Maybe it's your first time getting off the bus or maybe you have been off at one point in your life. Maybe even for a long season in your life but for whatever reason you took a seat back on the bus some circumstances or whatever came and you're back on. And now God is saying to you, listen, the tour is over, okay? It's time to start getting involved again. It's time to stop sitting there and watching. It's time to be on the team again. The situation might not be perfect, but it will never come. You need to trust that following Jesus and serving on his team is worth it. It's worth it. Thankfully, Peter had some trust in Jesus. He says in verse 5, Jesus, because you say so, I will let down the nets. Peter and his fishing partners during that time would have used a net like this picture up here uh, that had weights all around the outside of the net. And so they would throw it into the water and then then the weights would cause the outside to sink down below. And then using a string, they would draw it up from the middle. It would cinch all those weights. It would kind of form a a circle around everything and they would draw it back up, pull it in. And that's how they would catch uh, loads of fish there in the Sea of Galilee. And uh, they would drag to the surface whatever they caught. Let's see what happens here. Uh, Let's pick up the end of verse 5, and then we'll read the next two verses. Um, So Peter says, uh, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came. And filled both boats so full that they began to sink. That's incredible. 
Maybe you and I have heard that story before or read this before, but that's amazing. Thankfully, Peter listened to Jesus. He had been out all night trying to fish. He had thrown his net out. He cast it out and nothing came up. He'd done it again and nothing came up. He had done it again and nothing came up. He had failed time after time after time after time. Thankfully, he listened to Jesus and he tried one more time. The situation will never be perfect. Here's a disaster of life. Often the disaster of life is that people give up just one effort too soon. The disaster of life is that we often give up just one effort too soon. We've tried and we've failed at something or something hasn't worked out and we think it's not going to or ever to. If you're at a place in your life where you're thinking of throwing the towel on something, perhaps you would ask the Lord for the energy, for the spiritual energy to try one more time. The disaster of life often is that people give up one effort too soon. Peter had tried all night and had failed. And I love what he says, based on faith, right? He says, Jesus, because you say so, I will let down the nets. He wasn't trusting in himself. He wasn't like saying, you know what? I'm just going to try harder. I just got to do my part better. I got to try harder and figure this out. He doesn't have this faith, this blind faith in something that's out there. No, it's because of the one who asked him. Because Jesus was the one asking him. He said, I will put down the nets. Maybe your reason for sitting in the chair on the bus or sitting in your chair in the stands is that you've been involved before. You tried before. You were plugged into a ministry or a program that you really believed in and just didn't go well. Or you failed at it. Or it failed. Or it fell apart. Or you didn't feel appreciated. Or whatever it is. I get it. Maybe you're tired. or Maybe you're worn out. And I get that too. But listen, Jesus did not call you to be a fan. You got to try again. Don't miss out on what God might want to do through your life because you don't give it that one last effort. As long as the Lord gives you breath, you're alive for a purpose. Not, for, not to watch God, not to watch others reach the world. Don't be one effort too short of seeing God do a miracle in your life or through you in someone else's life. God did not call you to be a fan. God called you and gave you a role on the team. Growing up on the East Coast, we lived right by the Atlantic Ocean. I, I went deep sea fishing several times as a kid and as a teenager. And, and, and I wasn't like an expert or anything, but I went several times. The largest fish I ever caught was a shark. It was like this big, small shark. And I don't know about your experiences, if you've ever been deep sea fishing. I, I've, I've only been, like I said, a, several, a couple of times. But none of the times that I ever went, did we ever sink the boat because we caught too many fish. And maybe that's happened to you. Probably not though, right? And I don't think that was Peter's experience either, or his partner's experience. I don't think that was normal because the reaction shows it wasn't normal that the boats were sinking, right? Take a look at verse 8, what happens. When Simon Peter saw this, that the boats were sinking because of all the fish, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. They were astonished at the catch of fish that had come. 
I believe they were probably sitting around and, and they were wondering, like, this has never happened before, right? I mean, this didn't happen the last time we put down our nets. What's going on, right? Peter responds by falling on his knees and he is gripped by his inferiority to Jesus. And he is gripped by his own sinfulness. He says, I'm a sinner. I I don't have it. One of the reasons we sometimes sit in the chair as a fan is because we like to criticize. It's because we we think that we're better and we kind of, you know, when we're sitting here in the fan seat, it's really easy to say, I can't believe he missed that shot. I can't believe he, he missed that ball. What's he doing? He stinks. Take him out of the game, right? Do you know how hard it is to hit a baseball? But when you're in the fan, man, you, you can do it all. You're awesome, right? I can't believe he won't put that player in. You're the best coach in the world when you're sitting in the stands. Try being on the sideline. Try being in the game, right? Sometimes from this fancy, the reason we don't get in there is because we like criticizing. And we, we, you know, we can put down the way that church is doing that or we can put down the way that group of people, that ministry is run or we can put down this program or this other place or whatever instead of getting in the middle and getting our hands dirty ourselves. Peter, when he realized what Jesus had done, he didn't look at others and say, I can't believe them, look at them. What he, he looked at himself and he said, I am a sinner, get away from me. He, he, he was moved by his inferiority in response to Christ. And something happens in his heart. There's a transition that takes place. When you look at verse five, uh, Peter, Simon, he answered and he calls Jesus what? Master. Master was a term of, uh, of respect. He was saying, Jesus, like, you're a teacher, you're a rabbi, I respect you. Your master. But then in verse 8, when Jesus is on the boat with him, what does he say to him? He says, go away from me. What's the word? Lord. There's a transition in Peter's heart from simply respecting Jesus, simply, you know, respecting him as a, as a teacher, as a Bible teacher, but now he is Jesus, Peter's Lord. Jesus, get away from me. You are different from me. You are Lord. I am now seeing that you are God. Something happened in Peter's heart. This was probably the biggest catch he had ever had in his life. In fact, this was probably the biggest catch of fish that anyone had ever had on the Sea of Galilee. They caught so many fish. They called their partners over, right? And and, and I'm sure it wasn't like, hey, can you come over and help? It's like, get over here. Get quick. We're sinking. The fish keep coming, please. And they come and their boat gets filled up as well. And Peter's like, something's going on here. This is crazy. And I wonder if Jesus sort of just looked at Peter and winked. You know, if you mouth the words like, that was me, I did that. You know? (laughs) But Peter says, get away from me, Lord. Now I, I, I believed, I thought I believed you were the Messiah, but now I know who you are and you are Lord. You are my Lord. You are in charge of my life. See, fans admire Jesus. 
but players surrender their wills to him. Players say, Jesus, you're in charge. I mean, whatever you want me to do with my life, whatever it takes you know, to reach people, I'm willing to obey you. I'll move anywhere. I'll do any job. I'll do any task. Jesus, you're in charge. Nothing's too low for me. Whatever you need, you're in charge. Fans respect, fans admire, players surrender their wills to him. He's the coach. We do what he says. He's in charge, not me. Maybe you would be honest today and and look inside your heart. Or maybe you would ask the Lord to search you and to look inside your heart and see where you might not be surrendered to him. Is he Lord in every part of your life? Or are you holding on to what's most important to you? Perhaps as Peter, when you ask that question, you are gripped by your sinfulness and his superiority to you. Fall on your knees and surrender to him. Play the role that God gave you to play on the team. Jesus responds to us the same way he responded to Peter, along with James and John and his partners. Look at the verse, the second half of the verse 10, and see what Jesus says to Peter. It says, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything and they followed him. Amazing. Amazing. Jesus tells these seasoned fishermen who had probably grown up fishing on that lake, learning how to catch fish for a living and then getting into the business. He was telling them, and they may not or may have been good with people, probably not from what we know about Peter, but he was telling them that now you're going to fish for people. People are going to be more important to you than fish. And now that you're on my team, on Jesus' team, you're going to be catching people. You know, Jesus didn't go after the people for his team that you would have thought he should. And maybe that's why sometimes you think you need to be stuck in the fans' chair because you're not as good as the players on the field. You you can't do it like they can do. And and, and maybe you think, you know, I'm just too old or I'm too young or I don't know enough or, 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 you know, I I wasn't very good in school or it's really hard for me to understand stuff in the Bible. Listen, none of that's true. Maybe all of it is true, but Jesus can use you anyway. Jesus selected extremely common or normal people. Jesus didn't select the people that we would have thought he would have selected for his team of 12 that was going to change the world. Not a single teacher of the law. Not a single priest. Not a single rabbi. He chose fishermen, a tax collector, a political activist, and other ordinary blue-collar working-class people to be on his team. In other words, he chose people like you and me. Normal people. Regular people. No matter what your skills are, God can use them. It doesn't matter what your story is, God can rewrite it and he can use it. It doesn't matter what your personality is. God gave that to you and loves that about you. God can use you. Not everyone has the same role, 
but everyone has a vital role. Listen, we need you on the team. We need you on the team. Don't ever believe that you're not needed, that it wouldn't matter if you don't get in the game. Don't assume that everything's going fine without you. There are visions to reach more of the next generation and more segments of our community if we just had the team in place. We need you. We need you to to pick up your part, to join in and be a part of the team. There are people that are not being reached because we're not joining the team. We need you. That large catch of fish, which astonished the disciples that day, Jesus was teaching them something. Because he says, now you're not going to catch fish, now you're going to catch people. And, and I think he, the lesson, one of the lessons there was this large catch of fish that astonished you, Peter. Guess what? I'm going to do things like that through you in ministry when it comes to people. Peter, you're going to be astonished by the people that you're going to catch. I, I imagine that Peter and, the, and his partners there would have never believed or never thought that they were going to be the ones that Jesus would have used to start the church like he did in Acts to do great things for God that they did when they were out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They couldn't have imagined that. It would have astonished them. And that was the reason Jesus brought in so many fish, was to show them, you're going to be astonished. And I think you are probably selling yourself short of what God might want to do through your life. God might astonish you with how he's going to change you and the impact that you might have on our world. What astonishing things might God do in your lifetime? Not everyone will have the same role, but everyone has a vital role because it's all about connecting people to Jesus. Every single role, every single role is about connecting someone else to Jesus. Every single role, every meaningful task that we do connects people to Jesus. Whether that's working harder at your job so that you can pay for a kid to go to camp like our middle schoolers were at this weekend. Or whether it's putting down the chairs every Sunday morning or picking them up every Sunday afternoon so that people can use this floor so the Boys and Girls Club can be here every single week. It's about those people. Or whether it's uh, disinfecting the toys so that kiddos don't get sick. Or whether it's stuffing the bulletin so that people can be informed. Or it's removing snow early on a Sunday morning so that people don't slip. Or preparing food for the worship and tech teams who serve here from 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. every Sunday so that people can worship. Or getting supplies ready for Kids City volunteers so they can focus on the kids. It's all about people. Listen, not everyone has the same role. But everyone has a vital role because it's all about connecting people to Jesus. Every task that we do for Jesus has a person, has a relationship at the end of it. So what was their response? It says they pulled up on shore, they left everything, and they followed Jesus. In other words, they got off the boat. They got off the bus. They got out of the chair. And they got on the team. 
The situation will never be perfect to join the team. If you wait for the perfect circumstances, you'll never begin at all. The disaster of life is that people give up just one effort too soon. Fans admire Jesus, but players surrender their wills to him. Not everyone has the same role, but everyone has a vital role because it's all about connecting people to Jesus. So what is your role on the team? Where are you plugged in to what God is doing in our community? What's your role? Where are you using the gifts that God gave you? Where are you serving so that others can be connected to Jesus? The church of Jesus and the followers of Jesus have shaped and changed our world in ways you and I probably don't even realize. The local church is the hope of the world. Jesus said the gates of hell would come against his church, but would not prevail. When Christ's followers join the team, the world feels the impact. All because Jesus called and someone stepped into their role. Did you know that civilization as we know it had a major impact from people joining the team of their church? For instance, it was the church who stood up for the rights of children as far back as the early church in the first century when they confronted the way that Roman society treated children. It was Christ's followers who protected the rights of women. One secular historian writes, the birth of Jesus was the turning point in the history of women. To understand this point, just look at the world where Christianity is not openly practiced and look at the rights of women there. It was the church, Christ followers, who cared for the sick or those who couldn't care for themselves or those who had been disabled. The first school for the blind was started in Jerusalem at the church in the 7th century. It was Christ followers who started the concept of caring for orphans. Early Christians rescued abandoned children from the streets of Rome and took them into their homes and raised them as their own. In the 5th century, it was churches that began the first homes for the elderly, caring for those who were aged in society. In the 4th century, the first hospice was established by a church. And then a hospice was established in every city that had a cathedral to care for those and to show dignity to those who were dying. In the same 4th century, the first hospital was established in 369 next to the St. Basil Church. Although their most important function was to nurse and to heal the sick, they also provided shelter for those who were homeless. By 750, the growth of Christian hospitals had spread from continental Europe all the way to England. Without most of our world even realizing it, the institutions that we take for granted have their roots in the church. The very civilization of our world is influenced by Christ because people joined his team and played their role. When you look around your world, what bothers you? When you look at your kids, or at your kids' friends, or at your kids' schools, are you moved to say, we need to get involved? Who will pour faith into the next generation? What is it at your job site? What is it in your neighborhood? What is it in your church? What are the things that give you a holy discontent and stir something within you that says, someone must do something? 
What makes you pound your fist on the table and say to yourself, this needs to change. I need to get involved. Who will be the ones who will reach out into the middle schools and into the high schools in our area? Who will be the students who will stand up and reach their friends for Jesus Christ? We need you plugged into Access Youth Ministries. We need you to bring your friends so they can be reached for Jesus. God did not call any single person in our church to be a fan. God called you to be on the team.